If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The 17th century was a turbulent time for England, overshadowed by civil war, coups and regicide, as well as the looming threats of terrorism, invasion, plague and witch panics. However, in the coffee shops and on the street corners of growing cities, the common people finally had their voices heard. And those voices were loud. Speaking with Emily Briffitt, Jonathan Healy, the author of a new book, Blazing World, challenges the perception that this was a dull, complicated age to illuminate a revolutionary society that helped forge modern Britain. So we're today going to be talking all about your new book, The Blazing World. Now, this covers the tumultuous 17th century. So to start off, can you give us a quick rundown of the key events of the 17th century that we should be thinking about? Yeah, so um, the 17th century is just an incredibly complicated century. And and I think one that um, quite a lot of people, if they're not, um, you know, sort of academic specialists, look at and think, oh, my word, no, that's too, too complicated. I, you know, there's there's so much going on. All the the characters are really complicated. Um, there's no one that I really like. I can't decide whether I'm a roundhead or a cavalier. I can't decide whether I think the Glorious Revolution was a good thing. So it's a very, very, as you say, say tumultuous century and that makes it a very complicated century and i think what i'm well, what i'm trying to do in the blazing world is to is to tell that story in a in a in an engaging and an entertaining and enjoyable way it's a a century in which we see England um, at the beginning is ruled by a, a very complicated, very interesting, um, very unfathomable Scottish monarch, James VI of Scotland, who becomes James I of, of England, a very intelligent man, a, a, a peacemaker who is eventually forced to join a, a continental war that he really doesn't want to be in, involved in. For He's pulled into it by kind of family reasons, but also because of the sort of pressure from from um, from people at home who want to get involved. Then his, his son, his, his young 
younger son, the the spare, if you like, Charles, um, who is um, a fascinating fascinating poorly understood character he he i mean we all most people know what happens to him he he's famously the the king who starts off at sort of five foot two and ends up shorter at the end of his reign because um because of reasons that we we will go into um and and therefore he's kind of seen as sort of you know a, a bad king um uh, an unsuccessful i mean you know by definition if you get executed by your people then you know you're unsuccessful but I, I really want to kind of tell a more nuanced picture about Charles um, and and really kind of try and understand why things go so badly wrong for him and um, the country falls into civil war and for me it's not just about the competence of the rulers but I think Charles is also at the mercy of much deeper forces which are ones that I'm trying to um, talk about in this book and then of course you get the, the civil war and uh, the regicide and and 1647 which I think is the most fascinating year in English history it's where um, the army takes control um, England comes really really close to a proper social revolution you get discussions of democracy um, all these kind of things um, fascinating period there's then an experiment in republicanism which um, we're supposed to sort of look back on now these days and say oh it's a terrible failure we you know this country is just not suited to being a republic. I, I don't think that's true. I think we need to understand it in its own terms. Um, there were lots of reasons that it, it, it uh, that the republic um, struggled, and and lots of different forces. There's also, of course, the Titanic very problematic figure of Oliver Cromwell right at the middle and you know I can't get my head around Oliver Cromwell no one you know it's been 350 years no one has yet got their head around Oliver Cromwell I hope this book will give readers some tools with which they can make their own decisions you then get the um, of course the monarchy is restored the republic fails um, in the long term and you get the the rule of um, Charles II followed by his brother James II who whose rule then collapses um, and I think again that, that sort of restoration period is one that I mean, it's a great story. There's lots of great incident, not just the Great Fire of London and the plague. We all know about that, but also the exclusion crisis, which I think is, you know, utterly fascinating. You get the birth of political parties. In many ways, it's sort of rehash of the issues of the Civil War. And, you know, the reign of Charles II is, is again, it's something which, you know, the sort of view in, in the popular press is often it's sort of, you know, kind of playboy fun kind of stuff. But but also there's an awful lot of repression. There's an awful lot of political conflict. There's a, a lot of um, also, kind of, you know, deeper questions about economic change and things like that, which which I want to talk about. So so the book is all about that. It's all about those great events. It ends with the Glorious Revolution in which there's a, a Dutch invasion, which is also sort of a re revolution. Again, I want my readers to make their own minds up about that. I, I sort of have my views. I think it's more revolutionary than we think. So so I'm trying to tell this story. I'm also trying to write political history with this, with society put back into it. Throughout the book, I'm I'm drawing lots and lots of examples from ordinary people, um, ordinary people who have really quite nuanced, really quite thoughtful political and religious, constitutional, legal um, uh, views, and uh, people who engage in politics, and and also these kind of deeper changes in society which are um, altering the lives of ordinary people, economic change, development of things like poor relief, local events in the church which people are really quite engaged in. So there's a lot, there's a lot there. It's a sort of it's a big story um it's yeah this is a book about england and and i think one of the real glories of recent um work on this period is that england 
we no longer understand it in um, in isolation. And, and there's not just the sort of the, the histories which have looked at Scotland and Ireland and the relationship between or the three the three kingdoms, if you like, but also um, recent work, uh, um, most famously um, Devil Land, which of course won the Wolfson Prize, um, which has really kind of done loads of stuff to integrate the English story into an international context. And that's all really, really important. But this book is very, very much about England itself. It's it's about um, it's about what's going on in uh, within England. It's a it's about the way that English people engage with their with their government. You know, much as it's very very important to tell Scottish history, to tell Welsh history, I think it's also quite important in this period to accept that England was um, a unified state, a unified country, um, which needs to be partly at least tackled on its own terms so um yeah so it's sort of you know it it, it will probably it will probably irk people who want a really kind of um a really sort of uh wide-ranging canvas it is very much focused on england but i do think that that is uh, has its own validity i think um you know the, the the history of particular countries within the archipelago is is valid it has to be done um it's not for everyone but it has to be done what state was English governance at this time, at the start of the 17th century? What, what are we looking at? Uh, it's a brilliant question. And it's a, the, the answer is, as all historians will always tell you, is very, very complicated. Um, England in 1600 is an incredibly rich country. And people don't really get that. You know, in, in a lot of popular history books um, on this period, we tend to think of England as being sort of poor, peripheral, unimportant. But that's, that's only part of the story. The state is poor. The monarchy is poor, but the people are actually pretty wealthy, or at least there's a lot of wealth going round. It's not very evenly distributed, but there's a lot of wealth going round. And that, in some ways, is the sort of the fundamental problem at the start of the 17th century. There's lots and lots of money. When when James I comes down from Scotland, he passes through the east of England, which is the really sort of rich, arable, golden fields. And all these people come up from Cambridge in their, in their gowns and their paraphernalia of office, their gold chains and all this kind of stuff. And he sort of looks at it and he sort of thinks, well, this, this country is incredibly rich. They're very, very wealthy. They're making loads of food. They've got loads of trade. They've got really nice clothes. Uh, I mean, he doesn't think in these terms, but in terms of GDP per capita, um, England at this point is incredibly uh, is incredibly wealthy. But that's all well and good. But the government can't get its grubby mitts on it because there is this kind of complicated constitutional um, arrangement whereby, as a general rule, the government can't take people's money without getting their consent for it. And that consent is given by Parliament. And that James finds quite difficult to deal with. Um, and there are lots and lots of other kind of things going on at this point, which is just making it a lot harder for the central government. You know, the price of stuff is going up. It's inflation. The cost of warfare is going up. James has this kind of incredibly large royal household. And he he's also got this kind of tendency to pay off all the debts of all these Scottish courtiers who, who he likes. So he's very, very, um, he's a very expensive guy. And government more generally is becoming much more expensive, and especially when and there are wars to fight. Um, and that kind of creates this tension whereby the government is very poor, um, but it, it, it realises that there's this really wealthy country that it, can, that it, that it should be taking money from and, and it wants to get that money. But of course, to do so, it has to argue with, um, with the representatives of the people um, in, in Parliament. And that then becomes one of the defining constitutional problems of the period. Wh when can the, the central government take people's money? And when can it take people's money without first getting their consent? So can we dive into that a little bit more? What was the relationship like between those in power and the general populace? 
Again, that's a really, really good question. And um, historians recently have sort of complicated as we, as we do. Um, and the, the question of who's in power is a really, really interesting one for this period, because, I mean, there's a central government and there's a there's a king. And the king has uh, his his main officers. So, you know, the Lord Treasurer, for example, the Lord Chancellor. And, you know, he has his sort of legal team. He's got an attorney general. He's got, um, you know, all these kind of guys who are at the centre of government. They have offices in Whitehall and, and or around the, the, the royal court. Um, and they're the ones who are kind of making the, the day-to-day decisions, the people on the Privy Council. In order to get money and in order to pass legislation, i.e. to change the law, they need to work with Parliament. And that that expands the political nation even further depending on what period you're looking at there's about there's a few there's about 500 people in in parliament by the middle of the century and as i say to get money as a general rule as a general rule not not in all cases to get money they need to go to parliament and also to pass laws so if they need to change the law the accepted way of doing it is through parliament there are some people who argue the king can change the law by royal proclamation but that's that's very very that's an outlying argument i think but then we're talking about a state which has not really much bureaucracy, no standing army yet. By the end of the 17th century, it's got a standing army, no police force, no professional police force. So how does it actually enforce this stuff? Well, it does so by co-opting local people. And these are often quite ordinary people. So the, the gentry who are you know quite, quite wealthy guys in, in the provinces, they're involved in county government. And then below them on, at the parish level, um, each parish has church wardens. It has overseers of the poor who deal with welfare policy. It has constables who deal with, you know, it's the constable who has to close down the, the unruly alehouses, which stay open beyond 9pm. That's not an easy job. Um, and these guys are, and they are almost all men, but, it, but women take part in the political nation as well as, as things like as witnesses in the law courts. And there's a hugely complicated legal system which um, which allows the country to be governed. So that question of who is governing and who is not governing is a very, very complicated one. Uh, this idea that because the state and by that, I, I don't mean the government. I'm just dis- I'm distinguishing it from the state. The government is the people at the top who are making the decision. The state is the apparatus which puts those decisions into into play because the state is so kind of wide and so many quite ordinary people are involved in it. They are particularly likely to get opinions about it. And one of the biggest connections, if you like, between centre and localities is religion. And that's one of those things we find today, we find very, very hard to get our heads around. But the government at this point is saying things about the organisation of religion, about the liturgy, about the organisation of the church, which are controversial. And it's things like, where do you place the communion table? Do you place it in the middle of the church where it's accessible to everyone, but therefore, you know, people can put their babies, can change their babies on it. You know, that's something that people do. Or do you rail it off and put it at the end of the church like a Catholic altar? Um, And then it's much more, you know, it's much more decorous, it's much more refined, but it's also set apart from the people. And that to us feels kind of quite sort of, you know, almost quite sort of esoteric in, in lots and lots of ways. We live in a much more secular age. But at the time, that kind of issue cut right through to the heart of, of how a lot of people saw uh, their relationship with God with the apparatus of the church and of course with the, with the king. And one thing I'm trying to do in The Blazing World is to get or modern people to understand how sort of you know how how controversial this stuff was to to often quite ordinary people in 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 the period um it mattered all this stuff this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. What opportunities did uh, the common people have to have their say and have their voice heard? There are lots of kind of formal ways that common people, ordinary people, um, had uh, of of engaging with with government. And one of the main ones is getting involved in the legal system. The legal system is it's so huge and kind of, you know, has you know, tentacles going all across the country. It's it, there's one historian, a guy called um a guy called Craig Muldrew who 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 calculates it. It's a wonderful calculation. I love it. I'll bring it up whenever I can. That on average every single family in England in the 1600 was involved in about one lawsuit per year. I mean, that is a phenomenally lit- litigious society. It, it sort of, you know, it makes m- contemporary America look like the Teletubbies. I mean, it's it's just a, it's just a, a really litigious society. And that's one of the main ways people can actually engage with the state by, by, su- by suing each other and by engaging with the legal system. But there's also things like petitioning, which, of course, today, you know, what with websites like well, the government website, they encourage petitions. And, and, and it, you know, James I did as well, as long as they were from the right kind of people. And in the 17th century, petitioning takes off as a really big thing. And, and, and that's not necessarily, you know, big petitions to the to Parliament saying you must change this particular direction of royal policy. It's often local petitions about, you know, we think this this old lady, she's not a witch. Uh, she's been accused of witchcraft, but she's not. She's she's great. We like her. She's brilliant. She's a great laugh down the pub. We we love her. She's not a witch. Um, please stop that prosecution for her for witchcraft. Or or, you know, this 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 old old man here, he he's he's very deserving of poor relief. He needs poor relief. He should get it. Or this guy here, he's a layabout. He shouldn't get poor relief. You know, all this stuff, there's all this kind of stuff going on day to day. That said, there is also um, in this period a really big development of massive public petitions. And they really kind of start in the 1620s when uh, it's often often women who are petitioning to get the state involved in releasing their husbands from captivity overseas. That's one of the first things people petition about. But certainly by the by the 1640s in particular, mass petitioning becomes a really 
constant presence in national politics and 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 you know just like it was after 2016 after the referendum Westminster the Palace of Westminster was very frequently in the 1640s crowded around with people petitioning um, protesting and of course you know petitioning and protesting they kind of shade into each other and there's also a very rich tradition of popular protest in this period and you know I start with talking about revolts against um, enclosure the enclosure of land which was you know a significant issue in the early 17th century and, and by the middle of the 17th century there's this sort of great sort of mass movements in London about um, uh, about abolishing bishops about opposing the king and then and then actually eventually in favour of the king, there's a sort of you know there's a there's a moment in 1647, the most interesting year in English history, where there was a a, a conservative mob invaded Parliament and uh, and um, uh, and you know uh, caused all kinds of trouble. Um, so that kind of popular protest, and and as you know, one of the things I'm trying to sort of bring out is that popular protest in this period it doesn't necessarily come from the the revolutionary left, if you like. There's a lot of conservative protest, pro-royalist, um, um, pro-Tory protest by the end of the period the important thing is not that there's you know that there's a kind of bubbling up of a particular ideology coming from the people the, the important thing is that people are getting political opinions much more so than they had before and this makes England much more difficult to govern the classic example of that is of course when in, in 1642 just before the start of the civil war um, Charles I infamously came into the House of Commons and tried to arrest five uh, five MPs, found that they'd all legged it. Um, and uh, and then the, over the next few days, he went into the city of London, tried to get them again and was opposed by these massive crowds of people. And there's this, you know, these kind of incredible moment where his, his coach is sort of trundling along the rutted streets of the city of London and someone throws a pamphlet into it saying, you know, to your tents, O Israel. And it's all very much a call to arms against a, a tyrannical monarch. And, and Charles, understandably, you know, understandably is terrified by this popular uprising and, and, and you know, hot foots it down to, down to Hampton Court and never comes back to London until they're going to put him on trial. And that's a... a you know, I mean, one one way of reading that is that this is a sort of you know the anointed monarch is terrified by this you know uh, baying mob. But 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 my way is that this is a, a really kind of um, powerful expression of popular power, popular um, you know people power, where the the English people, the people of London in particular, are um, standing up to their monarch, and that's a for me that's you know that's just an important it's an important moment, whichever way you look at it. What do you think then caused this growth in making it a more politically engaged society? There's loads going on. There's loads going on. And the obvious thing is um, is, is print and literacy. And that's the first thing. I'll, I'll, I'll cover that. And I'm going to say something a little bit a little bit different. But print and literacy, I think, is really, really important. Now, of course, historians are always talking about, you know, new forms of media, revolutionising politics, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And print, of course, goes back to the 15th century in, in the West. Um, so it's not exactly new. But what is new in the 17th century is the way that print is used. And, and in a way, the way I sort of think about it is it's a bit like the Internet. And, and I know that's probably an analogy that gets used all the time and it's tired and boring, but it sort of works. And, and the reason I think it sort of works for the 17th century in particular is that in the early days of the Internet, it was all sort of it was all quite clunky. I mean, looking back, it was, there was emails, there was news websites, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, it did. It made massive changes. But what really changed it in political terms was the advent of social media. 
So different uses of uh, of the internet. So things like Facebook in the mid-noughties and then, of course, Twitter in 2009, whenever it was. And the 17th century is a bit like that in that print has been there for a long time now. But what's new in the 17th century is, A, there's a load more of it. There's you know, the, the, the number of publications is rocketing. B, more people can read them because literacy is growing. And C, there are new forms. You know, there's much more visual stuff. Uh, in particular, in the mid 17th century, you get um, serialization, periodization. So the growth of newspapers. And that sort of creates a kind of relationship of trust between publications and people, which, of course, is hugely abused by journalists, as, as you can imagine. But it's there. And, and that makes um, the political content of this stuff much more, um, much more explosive. And then, of course, you've also got new spaces as well. And the, the classic in this period is, of course, the coffee house, which is a, a late 17th century development. And you, you really can see by the late 17th century, particularly with the in the reign of Charles II and the exclusion crisis, people and it's mostly men, but I, you know, you, we don't want to exclude women from this because in the, the revolutionary period, in the middle of the 17th century, it's often women who are on street corners selling newspapers. You know, the levellers, um, this kind of radical proto-democratic movement, they really did rely on female newspaper sellers. So, so, so women are there. They're a bit harder to see in the records, but they're definitely there. Um, although they're probably less present in coffee houses than you might see. But anyway, you know, the the, the, the sort of space in, in a way, coffee houses are sort of like the social media space. So anyway, so this new, there's new ways of using the media. But um, the other thing I just want to kind of really highlight is the sort of deep lying social change, which makes this stuff more accessible, makes politics more accessible. Um, and one part of that is um, the growth of London. You know, London is in the, in the time of Henry VIII. London has about eighty thousand people. It would fit in Wembley Stadium today. By the reign of Charles I, it's got about four hundred thousand people. So it's about the size of um, of Manchester today. It's a big city. It's a really big place, and uh, it continues to grow. By the end of the seventeenth century, it's about um, five five hundred and fifty thousand by seventeen hundred, and that places a lot of ordinary people cheek by jowl with the institutions of government with Whitehall with the Palace of Westminster and quite close to the, the to the to the um uh, to the to the monarchy of course you know when Charles I is coming into conflict with parliament one of the things that happens is that he hears people talking about him out of his window at Whitehall you know at this point Whitehall was a palace it wasn't the center of um, it was a center of monarchy and government of course now by the 18th century it's the center of government but not monarchy and that distinction of course is uh, is a new one then but that physical presence of so many people um in this kind of fairly confined space where of course you know 90% of the english print trade is is based um and of course all the law courts um all that kind of stuff um is really really transformative um, but the other thing is from the well i don't know from about 1500 to 1630ish um the population of england is growing of course that means there's more people fine okay fair enough um but it also um creates really really interesting um developments in terms of the price of stuff it causes inflation um, and in particular, the price of food goes up. So bad news if you're really, really poor. If you don't grow enough your own food, you have to buy it. Your wages are going down anyway. So, you know, you have to spend more of your more of your um, livelihood on buying food. Bad news. But if you're a farmer who has enough money to, to grow enough to feed your family and sell a bit on, then you're doing really, really well. And these people, 
historians tend to call the middling sort. We're very careful not to call them the middle class because it's not the same thing. They're not a bourgeoisie. They're they're, they're still profoundly rural. These guys, the middling sort, um, are becoming more literate. They're much more likely to own books. Um, They're the ones who are involved in local government. They're the ones who are doing quite a lot of the heavy lifting in the legal system. Um, And therefore, they become much more politically um, aware. And of course, it's their younger children often who end up going to London as apprentices and, you know, living there. You know, they're the ones who become levellers and they're the ones who become um, diggers. But, but, you know, the most important thing is not that they get a particular set of opinions. It's that they have opinions in the first place. They're literate. They're thinking what do I think you know the king tells me this parliament tells me this what do I think what's my view um and that's the really kind of transformative thing I think that's going on so is it fair to say that we're maybe seeing a democratization of education and power so historians are very very chary about the word democratization and it is a we're seeing something very 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 complicated and 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 I think in the sense that by the end of the period, more people have more access to power than they did at the start of the period. That can be seen as a process of democratisation. What we're absolutely not saying in any sense is that by 1700, England is a, is a democracy in any kind of modern sense. But I would say two things to caveat that. And the first is that whilst the country isn't a democracy, there is a big debate in this period. And, it, and, I, and I see it um, as being... a a kind of constant thread that runs through the period about where sovereignty comes from, where where power comes from, basically. Um, Is it ultimately given by God, invested through a monarchy, which then passes from father to son to son, etc., etc., by the natural line of succession? Or does it come from the people? And that is a debate which, you know, which goes way back. It goes way, way back. um, and, um, And it's not new to the 17th century. But what does seem to be sort of newer is that um, there there are more people who are more aggressively at the start of the period saying that actually power comes from God. But over the course of the 17th century, that argument is settled in favour of sovereignty of power coming from the people. And the people are represented in Parliament. They're not very well represented, of course, and, and the people don't get to vote, or most of the people don't get to vote. Virtually no women get to vote. But if we were to permit ourselves a small a small tidbit of the sin of Whiggery, of Whig history, you know, the idea that history is moving forward, it's progressive, we're going towards liberal democracy by the end. If we permit ourselves a small morsel of that sin, then what we can say is that if we needed if we want to get to a democracy we need to have the, the we need to have popular sovereignty first. And that's what's get that's what gets settled in the 17th century. And it partly gets settled by the Civil War. You know, the regicide kind of shows that ultimately if the king really, really messes up, then um, he can be uh, he, he is subject to the law. And that's a really important thing to to um, to establish. As I say, it's not 100 percent new, but it, it's 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 you know, it's much more carefully, much more clearly established. And then, of course, the Glorious Revolution, which um, has the added bonus of of not, you know, not alienating a large proportion of the people population be, I mean it does alienate large but not because they're not because of the the murder of a royal martyr as they would say with Charles the first it's a lot less controversial I mean it's controversial but it's a lot less controversial than the regicide but what it again it shows is that ultimately if a if a king breaks the law then the king can be um can be um you know can be fired can be cashiered that's the word that they would use but basically fired and then of course the act of succession um which says that 
which uses Parliament and Parliament says, uh, this is 1701, Parliament says that actually it doesn't matter where you are in the line of succession. If you're of the wrong religion, in this case Catholic, then we as Parliament can say that you forfeit the crown. And we're going to give it to this guy who's sort of, you know, 50 places down the royal succession, who becomes George I. And that moment, of course, which is, you know, is the sort of, you know, it's the logical conclusion, if you like, of, of what's going on before, is just, it really kind of confirms this, this point that the monarchy is there on sufferance. It's not there from God. It's basically there because the people tolerate it. And in a way, I mean, that's still with us today, because you know, ultimately, if the monarchy becomes a burden becomes so unpopular and, you know, the, the people through Parliament decided to abolish it, then the monarchy would be gone. That's a product of the of this period. So, yeah, so I, I mean, I don't want to kind of say that it's a democracy, but there are very, very important constitutional developments in this period, which if you were, as I say, if you were being naughty and being slightly Whiggish um, in your take on history, you would see as being a, a, a precursor. The other thing I just want to bring out, though, is that the Civil War is the classic thing. You know, people say, oh, the Civil War, it wasn't it wasn't about democracy. You know, Oliver Cromwell wasn't a Democrat. I mean, of course he wasn't. No, no, actually, no one's a, de a Democrat in this period. The parliamentarians are not fighting for democracy. They're fighting for popular sovereignty and they're fighting for the rights of parliament. But that's not the same thing. The complicating thing there is that I think the royalists are fighting against democracy because both sides have these sort of great bogeymen that they are, they say that they're fighting against. And the parliamentarians say it's absolutism and Catholicism. Now, you know, Charles I is an absolutist, um, let's be honest. He's not a Catholic, although his wife is. Um, but, um, but the parliamentarians for their propaganda as a way of kind of engaging their supporters they 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 have to say oh you know there's these all these kind of you know all these catholics who are changing the english church it's, it's not true but that's that's the way that they sell their their point of view the royalists also have to sell their point of view they have to sell themselves they have to engage with the people to get support and the way they do it is they say that well, the parliamentarians are all radical um, religious lunatics you know they're all just you know men and women standing on tubs in center of london talking complete nonsense we can't have these you know we can't have these ordinary people talking about religion that's just ridiculous that's what they that's what they argue but also they claim that the parliamentarians are democrats they're saying that the parliamentarians would take away this kind of old traditional stable strong and stable political constitution and they would overthrow it and everything would be at the whim of the people and to a very very large majority of the sort of you know the kind of um broadly sort of conservative gentry um, and, um, you know, middling sort and, and, you know, lots of people across the, so the social scale. Um, the idea of popular rule of democracy is a very, very terrifying bogeyman and the royalists play that up. So I have one of the things I try and say in The Blazing World is that the, you know, this old idea that the, the civil war is not about democracy is not quite true. It's the parliamentarians are not fighting for it, although some of them end up doing, you know, the levelers do, but the royalists are fighting against it. They use it as a bogeyman. Um, so I think that's really, really interesting. And it's a, it gives us a real, a real kind of um, insight into the way that this century is seeing popular political engagement destabilise things in a really, really big way. Do you think that it would have been possible to have had an active monarchy and a politicised people at the same time? Or is that just a no-go? I mean, they, they, they try and make it work. In a sense, it's one of the conclusions of the book, which is that because the people become politicised um, and have all these kind of very, very different views about things, you know, about religion, about um, the origins of power, etc., etc., the monarchy, which 
really kind of to survive has to stay above this stuff because it has to be acceptable to 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 the people as a whole and it has to be acceptable to people of different political views um and um you know as as much as i don't want to push this argument too far one of the one of the reasons that the um uh that the monarchy has survived in the um into the modern era is that the monarchy has sort of pulled back from frontline policy i mean you know everything's political in a sense isn't it of course um but but that you know the, the monarchy is not sort of marching into parliament and saying you should vote for these people and they can't they, you know if they started doing that then i think you know hopefully i <laughs> think that we would say no 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 that's that's not an acceptable course so given that for monarchy to survive into a more modern context it has to be uh, sort of set apart from politics the problem it has in the 17th century is that um politics more broadly has become so divided and and you know classically by of course the end of the period you've got Whigs and Tories, the two political parties who have, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're mostly from the same social background. They're mostly from the same kind of class, if you like. Um, but they have very different constitutional and religious views. You know, they don't they don't just I mean, there's plenty of people who go between, but there's always there's always people like that. Uh, but essentially, they have two quite different political and religious um, views. Um, and the monarchy prefers one to the other prefers the Tories as a general rule in, in until the Glorious Revolution. It prefers the Tories because they're the loyalist ones and they're the ones who, you know, they're, they're not connected to all these dissenters who, of course, the um, the, the royalists don't don't like very much. Um, so by the end of Charles II's reign, and, and, and it's not really Charles II's fault. I mean, he starts off trying to be this kind of, you know, all things to all men um, and indeed women. Uh, uh, but by the end of the period, because of the exclusion crisis, because you've got this development of political parties and because one of them is is trying to use parliament to, to change the laws of succession, which is very, very, you know, very radical thing to do. Um, Charles II basically sort of says, right, OK, I am going to I am going to nail myself to the Tory cause. Um, and he he cultivates support from the Tories. He he politically outmaneuvers the Whigs. Um, and by 1685, what was a sort of um, a, a universal monarchy, if you like, um, or or at least sort of mostly universal um, uh, as it had um, been in 1660, has become a, a Tory monarchy basically. And then of course James II makes a complete hash of that by alienating the Tories as well. So the, the reason that he uh, that he that he falls is that ultimately he sort of. He annoys his core supporters in in the Tory party. But I think that idea that the monarchy is um, kind of pegging itself to one particular political viewpoint um, makes an activist politicised monarchy much, 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 much harder because you're you're ultimately going to alienate a large proportion of of the population. And that goes back as well it doesn't just come out of nowhere under Charles II it goes back to to Charles I of course you know by the 1640s of course he's a he's a party leader he's not a he's not a he's not a king he's a party leader he's leading a royalist party but but that sort of goes back to his actions in the 1630s in particular and uh, you know Charles I is a man who has lots and lots of very complicated views. He's a, um, in many ways, he's he's very Puritan. He's very civilized. He likes his art. He doesn't want everything out of out of order. He certainly doesn't like people, you know, drinking and cavorting in the way that his his father had. Um, but what he really hates is 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 Puritans in the church. He he doesn't like um, people who want a, a more stripped back form of worship. He doesn't like active involvement by congregations. He doesn't really like people going away and doing their own private prayer. He wants people to accept what the bishops have told them. He, the bishops are very, very important to Charles. He's very much sort of anti-Puritan. And that means that he intervenes in this kind of really complicated 
essentially kind of culture war that's going on in the early 17th century between people who sort of see their relationship with their neighbours as being more important and people who see their relationship with God being more important. That's very two very different views. Um, and the classic example of that um, is this is the Book of Sports, which um, Charles issues in 1633. It's actually taken from something his father did. And it basically says quite innocuous, really. It sounds quite innocuous to do. It's fine to play football and do other kind of lawful forms of recreation on the Sunday after church. Fine. No problem at all. With that, he says every 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 minister has to read this in their church. They have to make it clear to their congregations that you can play football on a Sunday. Fine. No problem. But this is very, very controversial because lots of people believe that the Sunday should be kept completely for religious um, uh, instruction. The Sabbath day. Honour the Sabbath. That, you know, that, that's a very, very important thing. And, and Charles just kind of Fades into this thing and instead of just sort of saying well this is what I prefer but you know you do you which is what his father does he says not only do you have to take my view on this very very controversial very difficult issue but if you don't then I will fire your minister um and and that he's just wading into this stuff and 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 becoming like I say becoming a party leader becoming the leader of a particular kind set of opinion rather than a national leader and I think the monarchy finds it difficult to to to, to navigate those waters in this period there's just so much controversy um and the monarchy doesn't yet realize that it has to just step back and say you know fine we're just going to poodle around in um, in Whitehall and do our thing uh, or Buckingham Palace eventually um and and you guys sort out the politics down in down in Westminster um they don't do that yet with all that in mind what echoes of the 17th century do you think we still see today I mean, it's it's not a question I like, I'm afraid, because I think there's a there's a huge sort of pressure on historians, particularly when you're writing for a, a general audience to sort of say, oh, well, you know, Brexit, just like the exclusion crisis or, or you know, Boris Johnson is basically Charles the first or, or, or Charles the second. I don't know. Whoever, whoever you want to, whoever you want to go for. I don't think it's Oliver Cromwell. And and I think, you know, it's, it's kind of fun. But I, I what I'm trying to do here is to write an enjoyable and engaging book, which tells a really, really good, really important and really useful story. And I think that's we don't want to lose sight of that. Nonetheless, were you to want to make um, uh, uh, contemporary allusions, I think um, I mean, you know, I, I think there's a lot of interesting questions which are going to emerge um, about the, the the role of the monarchy. You know, we, we had a very popular, long, long-standing monarch in this country, and that's now changed. And I think, in a way, a lot of those questions about what role the monarchy has in our political system, I mean, not, not, not really very much. It's more of a social role in a way. Those questions will, I think, become more, I think they have been sort of, they've been kicked into the long grass for a while. And, and, and now that there's been a change at the top, I think that might change. So I, I think, you know, it, it, in some ways, the really important thing about history is not to look for not to look for parallels and and um but but it's a it's a way of looking at societies that are very different and 17th century society is just incredibly different to our own in lots and lots of ways and yet these people were were capable of thinking about radical political change at the center they they got rid of the monarchy i mean if you know uh, i'm not saying i'm not saying for a moment that we should i mean listeners will have their own views on this but but if they could do it then then we could there's no particular reason why uh, why that can't happen again as i say i'm not saying it should um, uh, listeners can make their own decisions um, i am studiously neutral so so there's a question of the of the monarchy and its relation to to politics as well but i also think this um this period sees um 
a society grappling with deep-lying social problems, deep-lying social change, um, inflation, there's, there's a cost of living crisis, all that kind of stuff, um, and, uh, and a, a, a rapidly changing kind of media landscape and not always dealing with it very well. I mean, you know, they, they end up they end up killing each other ultimately. So I, I don't think the, the I don't think the seventeenth century provides us a, a roadmap of of how we should deal with um, things like culture wars, things like you know new forms of media, things like questions about monarchy. It certainly doesn't. I mean, they screw it up massively. They all they all end up killing each other. Um, I, I I don't think that's a good model. But it does show how difficult some of these things are. And you know, one of the real sort of take homes of the Blazing World, I hope, is that people. 350 years ago were not less intelligent than us they were not more ignorant than us i mean obviously they didn't understand science in the same way but they had very very complicated very well thought out views about religion about the world about law i mean you know the the, the amount of kind of legal knowledge amongst ordinary people is just is, is just astonishing it's way better than it is today so one lawsuit per year i mean you know that that will sort that out and so these are very very intelligent people who are dealing with a set of very, very difficult problems. And as I say, they don't do it very, very well. But I, I mean, you know, if, if if the reader comes out of the blazing world and thinks, well, oh gosh, these these terribly intelligent people had all these kind of difficult problems and they, they massively messed it up. Let's not be complacent in our own world about, you know, us intelligent people. We are intelligent people, I hope. We're dealing with complicated problems. We might screw it up. You know, people have done so before. Um, so there's, it's, it's always good to sort of uh, remind ourselves of the fallibility of, um, of those in power, I think. That was Jonathan Healy. His book, The Blazing World, A New History of Revolutionary England, is out now, published by Bloomsbury. You can read more about this transformative era in an article written by Jonathan on historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.